This is Reset. I'm Sasha Ann Simons. Around the holidays, many of us want to give more than just presents, right? We want to find a way to help those in need. So we set a budget for what we can afford to give, but then have the daunting choice of who or what to support. The number of people and places that are in need is countless. So how can we decide where to donate? Well, we've assembled a panel of experts who have thought deeply about this dilemma to provide some guidance for us. With us now is Michael Plant, founder and director of the Happier Lives Institute. Welcome to Reset, Michael. Hello. Also with us is Dylan Matthews, senior correspondent and lead writer for Vox. Good to have you, Dylan. Thanks for having me. And here with me in studio is Tim Bresnahan, Director of Gift Planning for Chicago Community Trust. Thank you so much for being here, Tim. Thanks for having me. And I will start with you. When you are talking to someone who wants to be more thoughtful, they say, I want to give back. How, where do you start? What do you tell them about how to give? Yeah, so I think I'm thinking about it in three ways, sort of where, how, what. And mm-hmm. we'll start with the where. And the good news is there's no wrong answer. And a lot will depend on the kind of donor you are, the kind of impact you want to have. So I think about food insecurity is a great theme or issue area to start with. Mm-hmm. I work with donors who they, they really care about tangible giving. When they give, they want to know that food is going into people's mouths in their local communities. So they may choose to give to a local food pantry, a soup kitchen, very close to the ground, very close to them. Other donors may pick something that's more systems-based. You give to Feeding America the Greater Chicago Food Depository, they're pulling strings behind the scenes, they're organizing, capacity building, they're doing a lot of interesting stuff at a higher level that may even include policy work. And then I think about something like the Unity Fund at the Chicago Community Trust, where we know hunger doesn't exist in a vacuum. So we are vetting organizations, we're picking the best local nonprofits that are not only addressing food insecurity, there may be housing, joblessness, mental health issues at play too. So really helping donors think about what is going to make them feel good Mm -hmm. about giving, and then let's pick an approach and the kinds of organizations that match. I like that. Where, how, what? Yeah. Dylan, let's bring you in here. You wrote an article for Vox. It had some helpful giving tips, and and you started by recommending that folks check out these two online resources. They're GiveWell and Charity Navigator. First of all, tell us about GiveWell. Sure. Uh, GiveWell has been around for for about 15 or 16 years, and they are are useful in that they're a highly opinionated resource, that they are trying to find the charities that save the most lives or or reduce the most poverty per dollar donated. And because uh, poverty is much more severe and and health resources are are cheaper to get in developing countries in sub-Saharan Africa and South Asia, um, it tends to recommend charities working in those areas. It recommends groups like Helen Keller International, which provides vitamin A supplementation, which can save lives uh, for as little as two or $3,000 per life saved. Uh, it recommends groups that work on deworming because there's some suggestion that, that deworming not only improves the health of people with, uh, who receive medication, but can help them earn more as adults and, and make their lives permanently better. Um, so, so GiveWell is useful if you, you don't have much of a direction in where you want to give, uh, but you want some pointers uh, to some high-impact charities mm-hmm. um, that will do some, some good somewhere. You disclose in the article that you donate to, to GiveWell yourself. So talk to us about what convinced you that, that this was an effective place to put your money. Sure. Um, so part of that is that I'm a reporter, and uh, when uh, – 
when it comes to stocks, um, we have a, a norm that you're supposed to put your investments in index funds, and that's because we write about companies. And I don't want to sort of be influenced in what I write about mm-hmm. uh, by owning Apple stock or something. That's true. Um, so yeah. I, I outsource it to the index fund. Um, and part of what I think of GiveWell as being is, is an index fund for, for the kinds of charities I want to support. Um, so I'm not I'm hoping that I get less bias toward uh, Helen Keller International or, or the Against Malaria uh, Foundation to, to name two of their top charities um, by donating to them. But I think also I, I think their goals uh, as an organization, GiveWell's goals, that is align with what I want to do. Um, I care a lot about my local community in Washington, D.C., and I, I care about my local library. But I also want to win personally help a lot of people around the world. And I, I think they're certainly not uh, flawless. And I think Michael Plan will talk a bit about some, some problems he sees in their approach. But I think they have a pretty good track record of, of directing money toward some of the world's uh, neediest people and causes. Yeah. Before we bring Michael in, I want you to tell us about Charity Navigator specifically. Sure. So Charity Navigator is, is uh, sort of the, the original uh, charity evaluator. Um, they're kind of like the Better Business Bureau of the nonprofit space um, that they, in their original conception, cared a lot about transparency, um, making sure that uh, charities weren't just sort of, uh, sort of schemes to get money to executives, um, making sure that they had reasonable expenses uh, and were doing reasonable fundraising. Um, in recent years, they've, they've started to do more GiveWell-style evaluation of, of how cost-effective charities are. Um, that they, they brought on a, a team at a group called Impact Matters to do impact evaluation. So sort of how many dollars does it cost a given homeless shelter to house someone for a night? How much does it cost uh, a veterans group to provide a, a particular type of aid to veterans? Um, so I would recommend not just Charity Navigator as, as a very good baseline, sort of is this is this group legit mm-hmm. uh, reality check? But um, if you specifically search for something like Charity Navigator impact and results, that will get you some of their evaluations of, of what the most cost-effective groups on whatever area, whether that's homelessness or food banks or what have you, um, uh, it'll, it'll point you towards some of the best groups working on that specific area. Yeah. Well, Michael, let's pivot to you now. You're a philosopher. What, what would you say to someone who's exploring what it means to create good in the world? Like, what are some ways to approach that question from a charity standpoint? Yeah, so so the question which I think is important to ask, but which we don't ask is, uh, what in the end do we think matters? And uh, as Charlie said, one thing we think about in in giving to charities, you know, we want to give to charities that make us feel good. And then Dylan said, well, also, we want to give to charities that, you know, we can we can know are really highly effective. And and then maybe that involves looking at abroad uh, in addition to looking at, at our homes. And so what we try and do at the Happy Lives Institute in some sense combines these, like we want to find things that are most effective, but we want to find them that are most effective at improving happiness for other people. So uh, we want to, um, we think that well-being is what ultimately matters. We should understand well-being as how happy people are. And uh, you you can just, you can measure this just by asking people how they feel. Uh, And we think this is really the the kind of the answer to thinking about charity cost effectiveness that's been hiding in, uh, in plain sight. So so that's the mm. approach uh, we take uh, and we're trying to, um, so we've been looking, for instance, at GiveWell's existing set of charities who, and they give a look at sort of economic and mortality effects, but we we try and assess the effects in terms of subjective well-being, which we think is what really matters. And yeah. and, um, 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 and so we've been uh, doing that. And uh, where we've got to so far is that we think that um, 
that treating depression through talk therapy, such as done by an organization called Strong Minds, which provides talk therapy in sub-Saharan Africa, uh, we think that can be even say like 10 times more cost effective than cash transfers um, to, to the very poor. And we've been able to do this because we're focusing directly on all what matters as our, our point of comparison, which yeah. is people's well-being. Tim, anything to add here? Well, I love the the points that the other presenters have also talked about. You know, c coming at it also from the perspective of we are working with donors to help them achieve their individual goals, mm -hmm. but making sure that it's a relationship that they're exploring with the nonprofits. You know, we are encouraging donors when they can to give unrestricted dollars. And that giving can be based on the trust that a donor builds with a nonprofit. Mm -hmm. By giving unrestricted dollars, general operating support, you're saying to the organization, we trust you to do what you think is going to have the highest impact, that's going to be the most beneficial to the communities you serve, and to really lean into that. So just another way, another lens of thinking about how to create impact, take restrictions off the table and let the nonprofits that you believe in do the good work that you know they're going to do. Yeah. Well, uh, Dylan, this brings me back to our, our charity navigator conversation. Talk more about why it's important to research charities before you give them money. Sure. Well, I think uh, there, there's not a lot of regulation of charity in the United States. Uh, different countries have different approaches to this, but um, the U.S. has by far the strongest tradition of civil society, of nonprofit groups, of charities of, of any country in the world. And part of that is due to a very hands-off approach to that by government, which has a lot of benefits that you, you let a thousand flowers bloom. Uh, but it also means that uh, a lot of groups get tax write-offs that uh, that you might not want to. Um, uh, one infamous example is that the IRS tried to, to remove the tax advantage status of Scientology in the 1980s, which led to a many years long uh, fight that the IRS ultimately lost. Mm. Um, and uh and and not just Scientology, which uh, people might have differing feelings on but um but groups that are clearly mostly there to to direct money to their executives things like uh wealthy people who uh put their sculptures in their backyard and let people in once a week and by doing that it means it's a museum and they can write off all the art they bought um so i think a group like charity navigator is nice at at letting you know when a group is is doing is up to stuff like that is, yeah. is up to, to genuinely shady business um and it's it's not give well does sort of another cut of of the groups that are that are actually doing what they say they're doing uh which of those do it most effectively um but i think the first cut of are they actually doing what they say they're doing uh can be really important uh because it's, it's not a very regulated space and there are mm -hmm. uh, unfortunately some some real scams out there Tim, as we talk about doing your research first, right, what are some of the metrics that you think are important to pay attention to? I think the overall health of an organization in terms of how they fundraise and their revenue stream okay. is important. You know, I, I do think that assessing overhead is something that a lot of donors worry about. They think about, and I think it's fair to do that, how much of the money that a donor contributes is going directly to the programs that are really making a difference in people's lives. But I will put a caveat in there that donors, I encourage them to really set, establish relationships with, with the organizations they want to support. Because let's say in a given year, one organization's overhead goes up by 15%, but that's because they've hired the best 
executive director yeah. and the best development director that money can buy that's going to have an ROI of 12x. That may be re- a good reason for that one-time blip in a bump in overhead. And so I think getting to know organizations is important, asking good questions, and then using local expertise. You know, the Chicago Community Trust has been a grant maker and a change maker for over 100 years. And we vet and research organizations to make sure are their boards diverse and representing the communities they serve? Are they sustainable? Do they have good research methods? Yeah. Lean on the donors can also lean on us and the organizations that we vet in research to know great, there is sort of a, a stamp of approval that's already been put on organizations that they may not have the time or the bandwidth or the knowledge to go deep and do their own research. This is Reset. I'm Sasha Ann Simons, and we're getting tips on thinking more strategically about how and where we give donations. Our guests are Tim Bresnahan, who's director of gift planning at Chicago Community Trust, Dylan Matthews, a writer at Vox, and Michael Plant, founder and director of the Happier Lives Institute. So back over to you, Michael. Uh, In the Vox article that, that Dylan writes, he talks about giving to organizations that are doing research, say on something like climate change. So something more hypothetical, and that being another possible route. The idea of putting money there as opposed to something that is directly happening right now. So I wonder from you if there's like a philosophical argument to be made for why giving to future-focused organizations might be more impactful or ethical. Oh, so do you mean future-focused organizations or organizations yeah, something that's research? That's correct, yes. Uh, okay, well, um, yeah, so, so there's sort of an emergent stream of thought that um, maybe rather than focusing on helping people in the here and now, we should be thinking about, you know, what sort of impacts can we have on uh, later on, on. generations. Right. Um, and so uh, you might sort of wonder what sort of responsibilities we have to future people, what can we do? And this is this is kind of a new and emerging stream of, stream of thought. And it, it really turns on uh, two issues. One is um, how much do you think future people matter? So should we be making people happy or making happy people? And the other issue is really how, how tractable do you think it is? You know, so so changing changing the world now is hard, but uh, you know, changing the world uh, that's going to exist in a million years time, well, you know, that's a, that's a whole other thing. So depending upon how you feel about those two issues, that might uh, orientate you from either global poverty to maybe something a bit more uh, hypothetical like, uh, uh, risks of unsafe artificial intelligence or nuclear war, if you're thinking about, you know, well, yeah. what could happen over the very long run. You have thoughts, Tim? Yeah, I'm going to go old school to go future thinking. Um, I'm going to put a plug in for endowments. And so oh. one thing that donors could think about is, you know, I really care about Chicago or I really care about a community in Chicago, but I don't know what the most pressing needs are going to be 100 years from now we encourage donors, we'll set up an endowment that says, in perpetuity, I want to support environmental justice Mm -hmm. in Chicago. You may not know what that, what the result of those dollars is going to look like 100 or 200 years from now, but you know the the vehicle you've picked, a perpetual endowment, is always going to be there. And so it's a a real old school approach, but I encourage donors to think about that in terms of you're not going to know and have control 200 years after you're gone, but there will be organizations on the ground that will have to follow your donor intent and make sure that they're doing grant making to achieve those goals. Well, Dylan, here's something I found interesting about uh, your piece, right? You recommend people don't give to big charities, 
which, I mean, when I first read that, it kind of went against everything that I thought I knew up until this point. Why do you say that, though? Yeah, and I, I want to be clear that this is a this is a rule of thumb, and like all rules of thumb, there are exceptions. But I think the the idea behind the rule of thumb is that uh, your your dollars do the most good uh, where they're most needed, and um, a lot of people's giving is kind of automatic and and uh, without a lot of deliberation. Which I don't mean as a criticism. People are busy. Uh, they they uh, make decisions quickly because they have to. But that means that the, the charities that sort of come to your head when you Google the word charity or when you just sort of try to name charities off the top of your head, like, um, and, and these are all groups that do great work, but, but like the Red Cross or, or uh, Doctors Without Borders, um, often have budgets in the hundreds of millions, if not billions of dollars already, uh, because a lot of people all around the world are going through that same automatic cost process and, and giving them money. And... Um, one, it means that they're they're doing a much wider range of things, uh, which a varying effectiveness. And because they can transfer money between different sections, uh, they uh, aren't necessarily going to use your money on the most effective thing they can do. Um, but also, uh, they just are less likely to have what's called room for funding um, than a smaller charity that doing a more uh, uh, narrowly focused uh, activity. Um, because those smaller charities aren't what spring to mind. Um, yeah. to, to name one, uh, New Incentives is a, a give well top charity that uh, provides cash uh, to incentivize uh, people in low-income countries to get vaccinated against uh, uh, deadly diseases. Um, new Incentives is not going to roll off the tip of anyone's tongue when they're talk- thinking about big charities, but they do really important work. Yeah. And there are thousands of charities like that um, that are not what, what come to mind readily. And because they don't come to mind readily, usually need more money. I want to talk about cost effectiveness for a moment. Michael, how does the Happier Lives Institute think about the cost effectiveness of of a given charity? So what we try and do is to measure the the effect our our charities have in uh, well-being life years. So if you ask someone how happy they are uh, from zero to 10, then you know, a, a one well-being life year would be a one-point increase for one year. So um, the idea is kind of simple, asking people how they feel. Again, pretty simple. Uh, so we're just kind of uh, quantifying it. So we, mm-hmm. we can look at the impact of different programs, see the impact they have in people's self-reported measures of life satisfaction. And this gives us a common unit. So uh, you have an inc- your, your, your poverty is reduced. Okay, that has an impact on your happiness. Your mental health is treated. That has an impact on your happiness. But because we people take this information into their lives and then they they say how they feel, you can get information from the individuals themselves about how big a difference these sorts of things make. And we think this is a a big step up over sort of um, us as the donors assuming that we know how other people's lives are. It's quite difficult to yeah. put ourselves in other people's shoes. So Tim, this brings me back to your your mention of endowments. If I don't make a ton of money, how do I do that? Well, I mean, the Chicago Community Trust is a great example, right? So we are, our DNA is as an endowment organization, a perpetual organization that is meant to serve the needs of the Chicago region. And so we have donors that give us, you know, seven, eight, nine-figure gifts. Yeah. We have donors that give us $50, $100. And so I think... Picking and choosing what's important to you, if you can spend some time really thinking about what do I, what impact do I want to have during my life, and what do I want impact do I want to have a mm-hmm. hundred years from now, 
you can make a modest gift to the general endowment of the Chicago Community Trust, knowing that we are the philanthropic fiduciary that has to make good decisions about how to use how to invest that money mm-hmm. and how to use that money to have a local impact. If someone wants to make giving a part of their daily life, I know we're talking about this now because it's the holiday yep. season, this is the time. Uh, what advice do you have for folks listening that just want to do this regularly? A couple of approaches. So one, think about a donor advised fund. A donor advised fund is a way to set aside money that is earmarked strictly for charitable purposes. So through our donor advised fund program at the trust, you can open it. There's no minimum to fund it. We encourage donors to give appreciated stock or mutual funds or ETFs because there's a double tax benefit to that. And then you know that that money is set aside for grant making all throughout next year, all throughout the coming years. Okay. So that's one way to do it. Two, think about a, a sort of signing up as a monthly donor. I mean, I, I was able to go to law school because of a LGBTQ scholarship program called the Point Foundation. I give back to the Point Foundation on a monthly basis. And then at the end of the year, I take all of those monthly gifts, tally them up, and then I ask my employer to to make a matching gift because I'm fortunate enough to have a matching gift program at my place of employment. So I think thinking about what's the slow drip you can create during the year, but also what are all of the tools at your disposable at your disposal like a matching gift program? Yeah. Really think about the full suite of services you have in your philanthropic toolbox. I love that. That is such great advice. We're just about out of time, Michael, but I, I wonder. To what degree should we think that we have a moral obligation to, to make giving a part of our daily lives? As we, we mentioned before, it's a tough time. Sometimes, you know, folks just don't have it, right? Many people right now are struggling, and they may just want to focus on their own struggles. What would you say, Michael? Yeah, so I think you, I think you can see it as a, as a responsibility or, or an opportunity. There are different sort of ways to frame the same thing. I think something which, which sort of is salient to me is that if you earn something like $30,000 in the United States, you're probably in the in the top 2% of the world's income. So, and then if you, uh, also, if you look over the course of time, I uh, think of all the humans who ever lived compared to humans that lived to, to now, if you're mm-hmm. alive to now and you earn $30,000, then you're probably in the 0.02% of the richest people who have ever lived. Yeah. So we might not feel rich because we compare ourselves to those around us, but mm-hmm. in a kind of a global and a historical context, we really are the... Uh, are the fortunate few, and that that I think makes it a bit easier to to um, hand over our, our our nickels and dimes to try and make a difference to yeah. other people's lives. Very good point. We'll leave it there. Michael Plant is founder and director of the Happier Lives Institute. Tim Bresnahan's director of gift planning at Chicago Community Trust, and Dylan Matthews is a writer for Vox. Thank you all so much. Thank you.